The story goes that when the pogroms came, my great-great-grandfather left his tiny village in Lithuania to walk all the way to America. But he stopped in Cardiff and liked it. Maybe it reminded him of Lithuania, only less snow. And later on, I was born, so nearly an American, but Welsh. I spend a lot of time in America, a lot of time panicking, because I can't reach my family in London. They never answer the phone, so I assume some tragedy has occurred. I have panicked unnecessarily in all 50 states. I'll tell you who I envy. Phil Parker. What I do when I don't know the answer to something, and when it's something important, is I go on some kind of spiritual journey in my head to work out what I should be doing next. So I did what I would call a vision quest, and I got a very, very clear image that I needed to go to the desert, a red desert, and see the sunrise on a red desert. And then when I kind of came back to reality, I was like, yeah, but I've got three children and a wife, so yeah, it'd be too hot for the kids, and it'd be really expensive and crazy. And they would have gone, are we there yet, a lot of the time, because... <laughs> so I shelved the idea. And then just before my 40th birthday, my wife decided that she didn't want to be in the relationship anymore and that kind of knocked me sideways because it was a bit unexpected or totally unexpected but then I suddenly remembered about two days after this happened the dream that I should go to the desert I didn't know which desert it was so my sense was it was very much in the western states of America so I kind of looked on the map and I was just very much drawn to the Nevada-Californian border. In that particular vision quest, which, which I did in the summer, it said go to a town, something like Newton or something. It starts with an N and ends in T-O-N as well, about six letters. And it's in Nevada-California region. So I got the map out and in the map of that particular part of the country, there's just nothing there. <laughs> there's no towns, it's just a desert. But when I look closer, right on the... Nevada, California border, there's a town called Nipton. And town is a bit of an exaggeration, really. So that's where I had to go. So I, I booked my tickets, off I went, got myself a silver Mustang convertible. That was just uh, pure, <laughs> pure lust, lust for an open-top sports car. So I'm driving through the desert, and I, I crested the hill, and then I drove down this very long road on the final stretch towards Nipton. And... As I drove over the hill towards Nipton, and it's in this flat plain, completely surrounded on 360 degrees by immense mountains, it had a particularly special energy to it. And I think for years it had been used by the American Indians as a kind of trading post, a kind of crossing place. And now the railroad goes through it, so you get these amazingly long trains kind of hooting at night as they drive through. I was completely struck by this sense of, this is exactly how it looked in the dream, in the vision quest. And it just felt like this is exactly where I'm supposed to be, right now, at this moment in time. So I arrive in Nipton, population 15, <laughs> 15, 1, 5, all that night, 16, because I was visiting, and I stayed in the Nipton Hotel, in a hotel stretching it, really. It's a house, and next to it is the Whistle Stop Cafe. And again, I was the only diner there that night. But yeah, they, I don't think that had seen anybody for quite some time. The guy who ran the Whistle Stop Cafe said, look, whatever you want, I'll make for you. So I had my birthday meal there. And then he said, all right, I'm off now. And the lights went off in Nipton, and that was it. And I was kind of basically left alone to my own devices all night. During the night, I went to sleep, 
and I kept on being woken up by the land. It started kind of calling me. The land was talking to me and waking me up and asking me to do all sorts of things, which involved me walking into the desert in the middle of the night. And again, this sense of an appointment that it was something that I was supposed to do, and it was a very important thing for me to do for myself and for what I'm going to be doing next in my life. There was this ancient energy in the land. At this point in Phil's story, I must admit I'm expecting some twist. The land calls him, some ancient call, and he walks out into the desert and gets mugged or bitten. But nothing bad happens to him. It proves to be an entirely successful spiritual journey. I was once told by the leader of an ashram in Cornwall to go out into a field and meditate, but I chose an overly brightly coloured field and a bee landed on my shoulder and I found it very difficult to ponder the big questions when I was focusing specifically on the bee. Why do my spiritual journeys end like that when Phil's ended like this? Without the noise, almost a distractor, you could feel more in touch with our fundamental connection with everything, you know. So even now, when I'm sitting here and I can remember, because one of the things the desert said was to remember the Earth. Of course, the Earth that we're standing on right now is completely continuous with every other point in the planet. And you can, with your mind and with your energy, reconnect to any part in the world. To be alive is really to actually to be able to be spontaneous, which means to be able to choose what we do and who we are based on who we are right now. And for me, I think that's probably what the desert reinforced. I considered going to America for this program, to the desert, to crack my spiritual abyss once and for all, but my work visa has expired, and I've heard enough post-9-11 stories of grannies from the Midlands being shackled and deported for filling in the wrong forms, so I decide not to risk it. The film director, Chris Etridge, was recently at US Immigration, and this is what happened to him. I finally get to the waiting room, and it's heaving with people. Babies crying, it's hot. There are three electronic screens with numbers in front of me. A buzzer sounds, a name is called, and someone with a fistful of forms goes up to a window. Only I can't make any sense of the numbers on the screens. Two of them are going down more quickly. My number is A623. The A screen is hardly moving at all, and I can't work out which screen belongs to which window. I wait, and I wait. I have to get my IEP 66. I couldn't find it when I came into Boston, so they issued me with an I-515 so I could stay for 30 days while I got it replaced. Easy. No. The IEP-66 has now been superseded by the DS-2019. The IEP-66 was written by hand, but the DS-2019 is produced on a computer, and the man at Easton who used to do the IEP-66s isn't yet authorised to do it because he hasn't had time to work his way through the manual, which is an inch and a half thick. So a man at Yukon is going to have to do it, but he hasn't. War with Iraq is looming. Will they let me back in the country without the proper papers? Today, I don't think so. I have my passport, I have my J-1 visa, I have my I-515. I'm a British citizen, for Christ's sake. We're allies, aren't we? They don't know I went on the anti-war march in New York. Do they? Buzzer. A-628. Mr. Ferreira. The A numbers are going down about one every half hour now. Buzzer. A-627. Miss Ramirez. Yes! Ferreira went home, or died of old age. Four more to go, maybe two hours. You know I'm going away now, baby, but I'll be back for long. 
half past four. Buzzer. A623. Mr. Etridge. I see him walk to the window. I listen to him explain about the IAP66 and the DS2019 and the I515 and the trip to Prague. Then I hear the immigration officer say, All you need to do, sir, is fill in form I-539 and return it to me with a $140 filing fee and your I-515. Suddenly I'm back in my body. I love this woman. I love America. I thank her. I take the form. I fill it in. I get my papers in order and I get out my credit card. She doesn't want my credit card. She wants a check. I don't have a check. I can't open an American bank account without a social security number. I can't get a social security number without an IAP 66. Will she take cash? No. Will she please take cash? She agrees that on this occasion we will accept a cash payment. I give her the money. I say, absolutely thought, but you are going to let me have the actual certificate today, aren't you? She says she will file the application today and that I will receive the certificate in five working days. I explain that I'm flying to Prague the day after tomorrow, so five working days is no good. I'm on the verge of tears now, and I say, Look, I'm making a film. There's going to be hundreds of people. Peter O'Toole, for Christ's sake, on thousands of dollars a day, waiting for me to turn up and say, Will the members of the Reichstag please take their seats? I can't postpone my trip. Five working days, she says. Do you wish to proceed with your application? I say no. And she takes my I-539 and she tears it in half, once, twice, and passes it back to me with my $140. I ask her if she thinks they will give me the form when I fly back into Boston, or will they send me back to London on the next flight. She says, Are you a betting man, sir? You have a nice rest of the day now. Come on and give me what I want, baby. Chris Ettridge. I didn't want to go through that, so I do the next best thing, a journey to a little part of American spirituality in Britain, Solly Hole. Hello. Yeah, we've come to see Brian Grant. Right. Brian. What's your name, please? John Ronson from uh, BBC Radio 4. John? Ronson. Brian and his assistant Marion are two of Britain's leading Mormon administrators here at Latter-day Saint headquarters, a sprawling office complex in Solly Hall. An American religion in Britain. Marion was a nanny in America in 1968 when she bumped into two missionaries who told her about the Book of Mormon. On that first occasion that I met them, I really had this strong feeling, this good feeling. I just believed what they had told me, and then I did as they told me to. I prayed about it, I read, I read the Book of Mormon, and studied, and was baptised within three weeks, which is unusual, but it just felt very, very right to me. And then I wanted to make that trek out west, like the early pioneers. So I travelled in an air-conditioned car, which was very different, but I did have six children in the car with me. And I had some really spiritual experiences there, seeing the places where Joseph Smith himself had been. And there is one room where they say the Saviour appeared to him. And as I sat in that room, I felt so calm and so strongly that the Saviour had been in that room. And I can feel it now. I just feel a wonderful 
feeling that that was true. So, so the spiritual experience manifested itself as a, as a sense of certainty yes. that it was right. So this kind of, I mean, I still don't, I don't, you know. Well, and also a sense of a, an extremely warm feeling in my breast. Your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers. Someone who cares. There is an intriguing scripture in the Old Testament that says, Be still and know that I am God. And I think that's the key. It needs a moment of stillness. Now, that stillness, of course, is ideally uh, presented to you in, in the desert, but it can be anywhere. Well, you see, my head never stops working. This is the problem. I don't think I've been still for, you know, really many years, like decades. I drink too much coffee. And I've got to say, I'm no unbeliever. I'm not an unbeliever. I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't no. even call myself an agnostic. No. But I don't yeah. think I've ever had anything that could truly be called a spiritual experience. Okay. I don't think it's ever happened to me. Well, we can have you meet with the missionaries and begin that journey, <laughs> begin that journey through the desert. Take second best, put me to the test. Things on your chest, you need to confess. I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver. I told you that I'd never had any spiritual experience at all, but actually I lied, there was one. And can I tell you what happened? You can tell Absolutely. me what, what you think what? of it. Uh, I went on the Alpha course. Oh, yes. Yeah, which is a course for, you know, kind yes. of beginner's course sure. in yeah. Christianity. And I'm sitting in the church listening to Nicky Gumbel up on the stage, who's like the head of Alpha. And uh, he was talking about answered prayers. And he said that sometimes, you know, if you hope, you know, something will happen, you know, God will give you a miracle if you ask for it enough. And, and I started thinking about myself, because for years we couldn't have Joel. And then suddenly he, he came after about sort of four years. And I always thought that maybe Joel was a gift from God. Mm. And just as I thought this, I heard Nicky Gumble on the stage saying, Joel, and I looked up, and he was reading from the book of Joel. Oh. And the bit he was reading from was, I shall repay you for the years the locusts have taken. Mm. And so afterwards I said to Nicky, was that a coincidence or a message from God? He said, message from God. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I don't know. What do you think? Now I've told, I've told you all the facts. I think so too. I, I think do. I think it's uh, a lovely story. Um, mm. Again, you, you think uh, back to the Old Testament and how long Abram had to wait for uh, a son. So there's a precedent in that story. There is. Abraham. Yes, oh, yes. very much so. Oh, yes, very okay. much so. Yes. Yeah. Reach out and touch faith. Reach out and touch faith. It talks in the scriptures about a burning in the bosom as being one of the signs that sort of spreads throughout the whole of your being. And it's an absolute certainty. It's a sense of absolute certainty. You see, because when that thing happened with me, with Joel and Nicky Gumbel, I just thought, oh, that's a bit eerie. Mm. So that was the wrong... Well, let me put it you this way. You couldn't prove to me, in terms that would be acceptable to a scientist, that you love your son. Okay? But you do. And you would die for him, okay? You know that. It's beyond debate. And you've got that exact same feeling towards God. Yes. yes. Reach out and touch things. Marion said I should go to the Malvern Hills and not smoke. She said the Malvern Hills are basically our version of the Mojave Desert. 
you can see four counties and it's effortlessly spiritual. So I've come to the Malvern Hills. I think it's the Malvern Hills. It's hills near Malvern. I can't see four counties, Marion said. I can see fields. And I'm now going to be still. I've got to say, I can still hear the roar of the cars in the background. I decided not to take her advice about the smoking because that's just a sort of Mormon idiosyncrasy. I'm just thinking about all... You know, Book of Joel, land being connected to other land. It's not deserty, very, very cold. Maybe it's more a summer thing. See, I just keep having thoughts. One thought leads to another thought. I've had to turn my phone off to be still. And in doing so, I'm out of contact with my family. What if? Joel is now reaching up for the flex of a newly boiled kettle. Every thought I have, I can have spiritual thoughts, I could be thinking any, anything, it always leads towards that. There's a car. Car the car's blown it. Now the car blew it for me. The comedian Rich Hall, who lives in Montana, says anyone hoping to think the big thoughts in Britain are basically on a hiding to nothing. There's no such thing as a real free Britain. You know, you can ramble, you can go up these hiking paths, but you, you know, cross over into people's property. But I think at every, you know, juncture, you probably feel like you're hemmed in by some kind of unseen bureaucratic, you know, there's always something that's keeping you from feeling like you're just really on the open range. And so to Americans, to go west just means to just watch the landscape just unfold forever. It makes everything more majestic. Because I live in Montana, and it's just another small town in America, but you've got these mountains as a backdrop, and so everything is suddenly like a John Ford Western. Even if you're walking to the dry cleaners, you're walking to the dry cleaners against this magnificent backdrop. So I think it just kind of makes you think that there is something endless out there, you know? It humbles you a bit, and it also just makes you think that, well, even in the crappiest day, you've still got these mountains. It's a more optimistic view when you don't look out and see big gray buildings and traffic. I've been to Montana and it does feel very isolated from the rest of the country. What I like about it is that um, whatever's going on in America politically, terrorism or this sense of impending doom or people who don't like Bush, all that stuff, it kind of doesn't mean that much in Montana. That won't be in the headline in the paper. The headline could say, 12 wolves relocated in Yellowstone Park. It's a different pace there. You know, spirituality to a certain degree nowadays has little to do with how you fit into the afterlife or your pre-life. It's just what you do on the planet. What I happen to do is tell jokes. That's what I'm good at. So that's why I feel more spiritual having fulfilled my existence on this planet here than being in Montana, where I basically just sit on the porch a lot and do nothing. So do you just stare out into open space? Well, I stare out across the way at another house and... I'm perfectly happy to do that for about a month. They're staring right back. You know, they come over and talk. You know, there's this culture of porches in America that doesn't exist in Britain, and I'm not quite sure why. Australians have porches, Americans have porches, Canadians have porches, in the front of the house. 
So they sit down and they wave at their neighbors, or neighbors come over and talk. You sort of live your life in full view of other people. And Brits are more inclined to hide out in the backyard. Rich Hall. The writer Mark Pilkington was somewhere in the American West in the summer of 1992. He was 19 and just out of school and trying to find himself in America. What happened to Mark is exactly the kind of catalogue of disasters that happened to me when I try and be free like a beat poet. One, two, three. He tells Miranda Sawyer what happened. What did you do? Did you stand there with a piece of paper saying... Just stand there with a piece of paper that said, Wes, please, and a very large black van, which at the time I thought looked like the A-Team van. Oh, how exciting. Yeah, pulled up, <laughs> and I thought, this is going to be great. The doors pulled open, and there were two very scrawny, kind of mustachioed, long-haired guys in their 40s who basically just said, you know, hey, guys, come on in. The entire interior was carpeted, wall and ceilinged with animal fur. And there was a large sofa at the back, which I promptly fell asleep on, and we just thought, right, this is it. And they said they were going to San Francisco, so we thought we'd be there in two days, and that was it. He bought a second hand over from a Cuban Chinese And dyed his hair in the bathroom of a Texaco With a pawn shop radio, quarter past four He left Walt Keegan at the slamming of the door Left Walt Keegan at the slamming of the door It was only once we started talking to them that we realised we, we might be in some trouble, but to start with, they seemed great. They turned out to be brothers, the Temple brothers, and their two female companions were, were sort of sat behind them. And, and when did you start feeling weird? It didn't take long when we started <laughs> chatting to them, really, and discovered that they were basically on the run from state to state. They used to change their licence plates, but each time they crossed a state line because they were wanted for different things in, in different states. <laughs> but did they explain what crimes they were wanted for? Well, they explained what they'd just come out of jail for in the last couple of weeks. And what were they charged uh, Armed robbery, attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, everything, basically. <laughs> and um, what did you say when they said that? Did you go, every time they went, you know, they kind of go, armed robbery, went, hooray! Yeah, we probably just <laughs> went, cool, dude. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> when you're a hostage to fortune, you just act friendly and, and polite at all times. Yeah. But they, uh, yeah, they then proceeded to have a great laugh telling us about all the things they used to get up to for, for pleasure. What kind of things? Putting kittens in plastic bags and kicking them until they died and pissing into a tube into people's car windows at traffic lights. <laughs> um, Hang on a minute, how did they do that? You guess as good as mine, yep. When you stopped off at, at garages and stuff, did you not kind of go, oh, anyway, well, that's well, fine, do, you know, do you, thanks very much. That's eventually what happened. We pulled into a truck stop and they told us to go out and start panhandling, asking people for money. <laughs> and said, well, we don't have enough gas to get to the next truck stop, so we need to get some here. And were you successful? No, not at all. Had no luck whatsoever. The other penny that dropped kind of after the first night was the realisation that certainly the older of the two girls, possibly both, had been doing tricks with truckers at the truck stop. You know, to earn a bit of panhandling. Yeah, to earn a bit of extra cash. And then just said, right, we're, we're jumping here, you know, thanks, guys. And ended up spending... What I still think of as probably the coldest night of my life when, and we both really thought we were going to die, sleeping behind the big bins at a truck stop, 
and just saying, okay, well, if we don't see each other again, you know, it's been fun. And then the next morning, after about an hour's hitching and nobody picking us up, the only people who would pick us up were, were the Temple brothers who'd, who'd driven back round again. And they're like, they must have really liked you. They did. They actually said, hey, guys, welcome home. You could yeah. just have said, you know, you know what? See you. We could have done, but we knew they were packing heat. And, uh, <laughs> that, we didn't want to end up on the wrong side of that. They actually were showing us their, their handguns. And... Did they spin them round and go, hey, let's play Russian roulette? No, but they did spin them round. And when you think about this... this this kind of strange little travelling scene, there's mm. you in this van, there's mm. six of you in there, mm. with a pretty tenuous social connection, mm. and the social connection is just you all want to go west. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds a bit weird, but it's quite life-affirming. Oh, the, these people have picked you up, and despite the fact that they may be disreputable or be doing something that you perhaps wouldn't want them to do, they're still looking after you. That was it. I mean, that was the, the crux of the problem for us, was they treated us with absolute kindness and just were nothing but incredibly nice to us and helpful... They fed us, they, you know, gave us clothing to wear. I think they just liked, they enjoyed our company. It was a shared experience of, you know, two very different worlds meeting. Well, Mark, you've got this uh, lovely book. Um, you've kept the journal. I mean, it's a big book and it's written all the way through. With in spidery handwriting, yeah. yeah. This is the, actually the first time I've ever looked at it again. I always knew I would one day. OK, it's funny, though, I really did like them. I felt safe with them and even trusted them. We were finally dropped off on Monday afternoon, relieved to be out of the van, which, with its oppressive carpeting and non-stop rock, played at high volumes, was becoming fairly claustrophobic. But we were sad to see them go. Bill even gave us a phone number to call them on. His mother's. I still can't make up my mind about them. I feel slightly guilty when we use them as dramatic hitching story material. Though who knows what might have happened to us if we'd stayed on. There was certainly a nasty glint in Bill's eyes, and I doubt we'd have kept them happy all the way to Arizona. Mark Pilkington was talking to Miranda Sawyer. Well, I'm back at home, and like Marion and Brian said, I should be still, listen to music. No, I'm, I'm not worried about Joel. I know he's safely at school, so that's not a concern anymore. So I'm going to try and be still and listen to music. Too much bathos, that's true. Radio 3 won't let me down. That's where the spiritual people go. It was kind of working a little bit for a while. And then I started thinking, you know, I need exercise. Because if I sit in this chair for too long, I'll just put on weight. There was just one moment, there was one moment in my life when I had anything resembling a spiritual experience, and I let it go. I think if I asked most people who'd found God what they thought of my Book of Joel moment, they'd say it was not only a message from God, it was a patently obvious one. But there you go. Anyway, people who find their spiritual place in the world might be happy, but isn't it a kind of... Prozac-type happiness, where secretly, deep down, they miss the screeching terror of life. 
I don't know what I'd do if I found myself in the American desert in a state of bliss. What would I do? Just look around. It'd be awful, wouldn't it? <laughs>